Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to be in verse 9 through 10. Would you stand with me as we read God's word? It says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we thank you so much for these words, and we've heard these words so many times in our life. I pray that today you would reveal to us the truth behind them. You'd burn into our hearts the meaning so that it's not just something that we know, but it's something that we live. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. 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 So, that phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is that new to anyone here? Has anyone heard that before? I think we've all grown up hearing that, but the question is, what does it mean? And I want to answer today, as best that I can, the question, what does it look like for God's kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven? What does it look like for God's kingdom to be advancing, moving forward? Now, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard this phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done. And I believe that this phrase is one that we've heard so much in the Lord's Prayer that it's become, for many of us, ineffectual. We've downplayed it, um, we've we've limited it and it becomes something as consequential as you know the prayer now I lay thee down to sleep I pray the Lord my soul to keep it's something that you know we kind of think of it as if the disciples came to Jesus and said Lord give us a prayer and he just kind of came up with something that sounded good on the spot but think about it who's Jesus speaking to he's speaking to his disciples these are hand-picked men chosen to carry out the mission of God that's been going on since the Old Testament and you need to know if you're here today that you are a disciple of Jesus and you're called into the story to follow him. So these words are extremely important, not just for them, but for us. And to Jesus, prayer is serious business. It's the fuel that runs the mission. And his words here, they must be understood. He says, listen, disciples, when you pray, say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? When we say, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Do we really mean that? Because often we're hardwired to live for my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in my imagination. And that's really the idea behind the prosperity gospel. There's this idea of Jesus died for you so you can have money and stuff. It's about you having your best life now. And I just say, if we are going to buy into that secular lie, what a horrible slight to the persecuted church. The people who are suffering in other countries like Syria and China who have to hide and live in these underground churches and they're running from the government and they're afraid of losing their lives for following Jesus. What do we say to them? If they look at us and in our American mindset, we're thinking Jesus is all about us having stuff and making our life successful. What do we say to them when they say, well, my life isn't like that. I'm being persecuted. Do we say to them, you know, your, your faith just wasn't strong enough. What a horrible insult to them. I'd say in many cases, the people in those countries who are suffering, their faith is much stronger even than ours. You see, God's will coming means that we have to give up our lives and our dreams for his glory. It's a higher kingdom, and it's the kingdom of heaven. It's one of Jesus' main messages. The kingdom is often misunderstood. You know, uh, often we deal in life with misunderstandings. We've got a guy here uh, at our church who is a prankster. It's uh, Jamie Urbina. He just was doing the announcements. And he has pranked me so hard in so many ways. He's served on staff with me. Um, Don't ever let him get a hold of your phone. 
because he will pretend to be you and text people. Um, just the other day, he got a hold of Kelly's phone, our, one of our worship leaders, and he started texting people as pretending to be Kelly. And so he texted one guy, another worship leader, and he's like, hey, pray for me, man. I just found out I'm allergic to the metal of my guitar strings. <laughs> He texted my dad. See, Kelly's a woodworker. Um, He texted my dad and said, hey, Pastor Rob, can you pray for me? I just found out I'm allergic to wood. My dad's response was just, what? (laughs) Question mark. And he actually texted me as Kelly saying, I've really been praying about it and I want to be a junior high counselor. And I was so excited because I've been praying for Kelly to be a junior high counselor. So I was like, yes. And I was texting him back like, I'm going to give you so many cool things to do and responsibilities. And then hours later, Kelly texted me. That wasn't me. That was Jamie. And my heart was broken. Um, But I have faith that one day Kelly will join the ranks. Anyway, um, often often misunderstandings, miscommunications can lead to wrong ways of living. And often we live in a false dichotomy where we're caught between this this idea of heaven as a far off distant land that's kind of intangible and we can't fully grasp it. And then there's earth, which is a sinful, wicked place. And, And it's like the message that we hear is you have to choose which one will you live for. And it's easy for Christians to fall into two camps when it comes to heaven. Focus on either the here and now or the afterlife. Rarely is the focus focus on both. Sometimes it's almost like there's two sides of a gym cheering and one side is yelling more heaven and the other side's no more earth. And and there's people on both sides. Um, We've got Gary Scott Smith, a man who just looks like he's having so much fun. Um, He says this, if an afterlife exists, worldliness is escapism. What he means there is, if heaven's a real place, then we shouldn't enjoy anything on earth. It would be horrible for us to have any fun, so we just need to frown and just pray really hard and and just not enjoy anything in this life. On the other side, the more earth side, we've got Harry Emerson Fosdick. He says this, our mission is not to get men into heaven, but to bring heaven to earth. It's this idea of, I don't know if heaven really exists, but let's make earth like heaven. Let's make it a utopia. And and, you know, really, I don't think that either one of these perspectives is the proper one. I don't think it's a question of either or. I think it's a reality of both and. Here's what I mean by that. You see, we need to ask the question, what do we know or think that we know about heaven? I I texted some of my students and I asked them, what do you think heaven is like? And one girl responded, you know, heaven is a castle on a cloud. You know, it's it's this never-ending worship service. We get there and it's just, you're a good, good father for a million years. And I was like, that doesn't sound like heaven. At least change the song. Um, we, We think of heaven as, you know, fluffy cloud land and there's for some reason there's babies and they're naked. And it's like, why are, why are they naked? They've got harps. Why do they have wings? What, what's going on? Um, now, so there might be some truth to these things. You know, there, there might be some, you know, clouds in heaven. We know it's going to be this glorious place, the final heavenly earth reality. But, you know, it's not the full picture that we get in these illustrations we make up in our mind. Because we don't often think about heaven, we are at the mercy of our misconceptions. Um, Jim Reeves wrote a song I'm sure many of you guys know. It's, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. And, and here's my response to that. This idea of, you know, God doesn't care about this earth. Who cares? We're just passing through. I wasn't made for this earth. This earth is not my home. Heaven is my home. Here's my question to that. If that's true, then where were Adam and Eve made for? Think about it. In the beginning, God creates what? The heavens and the earth. Where does he put Adam and Eve? Heaven? 
He puts them on earth. Very interesting. Well, was the plan Adam and Eve, you're going to live on earth for 100 years and then die and then you're going to go to heaven? No, the implication of the scripture seems to be that he put Adam and Eve on earth with the intention that they would live there, that that was their home, that that was where they were made for. And the scripture speaks of heaven and earth being together, being molded together, God's space and our space together. And it's sin that separates us and pulls us apart. And so what does Jesus say? Does he say, Lord, your will be done in some far off distant heaven. No, he doesn't say that. Does he say, Lord, your will be done here on earth only? No. What does he say? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, right there, Jesus is combating the idea that the only place the reality, heaven, God's space can exist is in some far off distant land. The reality is the plan from the beginning was always heaven and earth. It was always God's space and man's space combined. And here's the amazing thing. If you study scripture, it speaks about one day at the end of all things, the plan that God has is for a new heaven and a new earth to exist together. A perfect place, a perfect planet and a perfect heaven where there is nothing wrong. Perfection, a wonderful place to live. And so Jesus prays and he says, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. What is he doing? Jesus is inviting the will of God to invade this earthly space. What's another word for a king's rule? It's his reign. What do you call a place where a king rules? His kingdom. Do you realize that right here in this room, because we are citizens of the kingdom, because we submit to God, that this right here is an outpost of the kingdom of God. Where the king is and where his kids are, that's where the kingdom is. And you might say, well, if I leave this church building, does that mean I'm not in the kingdom anymore? No, listen, you have someone in your heart. Who is it? It's the king. It's Jesus. And so that means because you carry the king in your heart, the kingdom of heaven is portable. You get to carry it into your school and your home and your work. It's so exciting. Jesus says the kingdom is at hand. Is heaven a place that you can go when you die? Yes, absolutely. Is heaven a place where when Jesus comes back, he's going to take us to? Yes, absolutely. Is hell a place you can go when you die? Yes, absolutely. I hope you don't. These are future destinations that one day everyone will come to. The difference with heaven is it's not only a future destination, it's a present reality. It's already, but not yet. When we only view the kingdom as a distant future event, we rob ourselves of the kingdom's present power. How many of you guys have ever been to Disneyland on the Cars ride? Anybody? I love that ride. It's so fast and it's so exciting and it's so fun. But listen, it's everyone's favorite ride. So that means the line is three hours long. And I hate it. You're in the line. You're just suffering and it's so long and all these people smell and you're like, this is terrible. And then you ride the ride and you're like, yes. And then you got to go get another line. Sometimes as Christians, we view heaven as the ride and this life on earth as the line. And we're just like, oh, this is terrible. So many trials and tribulations, brother. We just got to get through it. We got to stick it out. Come Lord Jesus. Listen, when we live that way, we rob ourselves of what Jesus has for us now. He did not call us to suffer through this life. He called us to thrive through this life for his kingdom. So the question is, how does the kingdom come on earth as in heaven? Well, how does a kingdom come in any sense? A kingdom comes through invasion, occupation, often hostile takeover. But Jesus' kingdom is different because his plan is to invade not our borders, but our hearts. Jesus wants to occupy our hearts. He wants to set up kingdom and then advance the kingdom through his church. The heart of the Christian is the first outpost of the kingdom of God. God is not only preparing a place for us, he is preparing us for a place. My first point for you today 
as we learn how to advance the kingdom of God, is the kingdom advances in our hearts, not our self-interests. How we think affects how we live way more than how we say what we say. For instance, I can say as much as I want to, I'm in shape. I have muscles. I have abs. I can say those things. You look at me. It's not true. Uh, It's not the reality. And if we say, I love Jesus and I love his kingdom and I want to follow him, but then we live for the American dream as I want stuff and money and success. If, If that's what's in our hearts, that's what our actions will be, no matter what our words are. And this is why Jesus first always targets our hearts. If we really believe Jesus is king, then that changes everything. Once the kingdom is established in your heart, then it makes changes in your life and sphere of influence. Has anyone ever seen uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas? Anybody? Okay, so I wasn't allowed to watch that movie because I was a Christian. I still am. But uh, in the 90s, it was like, that's a skeleton. That's bad. Like, it, it was just, it was this thing in the 90s. 90s moms, you guys know, you were 90s moms. Like, you just, it was a time where the devil was hiding everywhere. And so um, my parents didn't let me watch it. And then I became an adult. And I was like, I've got to see what this is about. It's literally a movie about a prancing skeleton who lives in Halloween town, but then he discovers Christmas. And he's like, oh, what's this? This is amazing. So Jack Skellington in the movie opens up the door to Christmas town. And it's very interesting because he stumbles into this world where it's not Christmas yet, but you wouldn't know that by looking at Christmas Town because everywhere it's Christmas. It's lights, it's snow, it's presents, it's trees. People are singing Christmas carols. People are talking about Christmas and their thoughts are set on Christmas and so therefore their actions revolve around Christmas and they're making toys and they're getting ready for Christmas. And I just thought, what an amazing picture hidden in this weird little Tim Burton movie of the kingdom. Because you see, for us as Christians, even though we're not there yet, Jesus hasn't fully returned. We're not at the kingdom. We should live in a way where everything is about the kingdom. Our thoughts, our actions, our words, our songs, everything should be focused. Even though we're not there fully yet, we should live into the reality that the kingdom is here because the king is here. Too often, we buy into the lie that if we do this, we'll be too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. But C.S. Lewis says this, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. Jesus advances his kingdom through the heart and actions of his believers. And if you want to know about the heart of the kingdom, look no further than the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and seriously, if you have not sat down and just poured through this sermon and absorbed it, do it. Do it today. Jesus tells us what the kingdom looks like. He actually gives us a glimpse into what kingdom people are like. And it's death to selfishness. That's one of his main messages. In chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus says to this people during the sermon, you are the light of the world. He doesn't say, hey, if you feel like it, you can be the light. Hey, if it's not, you know, convenient for you, don't worry about it, but I'd love for you to be the light. No, he says, you are the light. You're the salt of the world. In verse 17 through 20, he says, God's law, not just, you know, the 10 commandments. It's talking about the whole scripture. God's heart is so important. It's, it's so important that if you ignore it or leave out parts that you don't like, you miss out and you're called least in the kingdom. It's this radical new way of thinking. Jesus says, you know, you've heard don't murder, but in my kingdom, you don't even hate. Jesus, I mean, if, I, if I'm not gonna kill, at least let me hate. I've gotta have my hate. Jesus says, no, hate is the poison that leads to murder. Citizens of my kingdom do not kill or hate. He says adultery, 
You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Jesus says, in my kingdom, you don't even lust. And the men in the audience at that time, and maybe today are thinking, you know, as long as I don't cheat on my wife, you know, what's a little bit of lust? What's a second glance? You know, what's a little bit on the internet? And Jesus says, listen, in my kingdom, women are not objects. They are precious, loved, and valued. Not only do you as a kingdom person not commit adultery, you don't even lust. That's what a kingdom person looks like. It's so, it's so radical. Jesus says, you know, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And he says, that's worldly thinking. He says, my kingdom is coming and one day I will judge evil. But before I do, we're on a rescue mission. And yes, it's dangerous, but I died so that you don't have to. You have a bulletproof soul and our weapon is love. He says, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. It's radical because the world says, kill or be killed. But Jesus says, no, that's not what I called you to do. The mission of your life is to preach the gospel. The question is, do we really think Jesus is Lord and King? J.I. Packer says this, God's kingdom is not only a place, but rather a relationship. It exists wherever people enthrone Jesus as Lord of their lives. And I love the statement that A.W. Tozer makes. He says this, it's, it's, I heard it in a sermon once and it stuck with me. He says, in every heart, there is a cross and a throne. And Jesus can never be on the throne of your heart until you get off the throne and you put your flesh on the cross. You have to die to yourself. If he is going to be the king of your heart, you must die to yourself. So let's move on to the church and our actions. My next point is the kingdom advances not through force, but through the church. Now, what do I mean by force? Well, when I talk about force, I'm talking about worldly governments, the, the kingdoms of the world and the kingdoms of the sword. You see, earthly kingdoms rule with force and they protect their own interests. And for those of us who live in nations, we're, we're, we're glad that they do. Um, when Christians, though, put their faith in any earthly government to bring the kingdom of heaven, when we look to any political party, when we look to any earthly government and say, God's doing something there, he's gonna bring the kingdom there, listen, we will always be disappointed. No matter how, things, how good things look at times, The kingdoms of the world are the kingdoms of the world, and that's why we must be the church. Sometimes the results are horrific. Uh, Look at Charlemagne. Charlemagne was the king of the Franks. He united much of Europe during the early Middle Ages and laid the foundations for modern France, Germany, and he was a Christian. But Charlemagne conquered and forcibly converted the Saxons. In 775, Charlemagne warred on the Saxons so that they would accept the Christian religion or become entirely exterminated. And in 785, Charlemagne declared these chilling words, if there is any one of the Saxon people lurking among them unbaptized, and if he scorns to come to the baptism and wishes to absent himself and stay a pagan, let him die. Can you imagine if we were at a beach baptism and my dad's inviting people to get baptized and he's like, just so you know, if I find out that you didn't get baptized, we're coming after you. That's what we're dealing with here. That's what happens when we mix the church and the state. God does have a role for nations. The Bible says that God uses secular nations as his sword of justice, but he doesn't use the church in this way. It's totally different roles. While nations may use force to protect their people or advance their own agendas, listen, our king has an agenda himself and it's to save the lost and renew all things. Our weapons are truth and love and our sole mission is to preach the gospel and bring glory to the king. 
even if it costs us our lives. Now you might say, whoa, 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 Aaron. I mean, that sounds a little bit crazy. I mean, uh, you know, I'll risk my life for the gospel if it means an inconvenience for me, maybe. But my life, I mean, Jesus would never call us to anything risky. He would never call us to anything dangerous. Look at the gospels. Look at the early words. When Jesus is talking to his 12 disciples, he's not like, all right, guys, now that I've saved you, all your troubles are going away. Everything's going to be great. There's sacks of gold back there for you. You're going to fly away on a rainbow. It's just, it's going to be amazing. It's not what he says. He says, listen, they're going to hunt you down in the streets. They're going to stone you. They're going to execute you. They're going to crucify you. But take heart. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, Jesus was willing to die for his enemies, not just his friends. It's very telling that in the tradition of Jesus, the king, you never see the early church fathers taking up the sword against the Romans to defend themselves. Think about that. They're Christians and they're being hunted down and killed. You never see the disciples defending themselves, killing Romans to protect their own lives. They actually willingly laid down their lives. They willingly went to the lions The only time you ever see a disciple pick up the sword is Peter, and we all know what happened. He chops off a guy's ear, and Jesus says, Peter, put your sword away. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. That's not the kingdom I came to establish. Now, here's the interesting thing. You've got the church, and the church is dying. We've we've got people executed for their faith. But did the church die? No. It thrived. It grew. It survived. And here's what happened. Check out Fox's Book of Martyrs if you've never read it. Or um, the updated version would be a wonderful book is uh, DC Talk, the band. They put out a book called Jesus Freaks, which is an updated version. Um, Fox's Book of Martyrs and the DC Talk version is it's a book of stories of people from the early centuries to now who have died for their faith in Jesus. Here's the amazing thing about those stories. You see people willingly laying down their life for the gospel. Often what happens is the soldiers and the guards and the people in the government who are executing these Christians end up coming to Christ themselves because they're so blown away by the example. Like we're killing these people and yet they're willing to go to the stake. They're willing to go to the lions. Like what is this faith? What is this amazing reality of the kingdom I want in? That's what the kingdom looks like. The kingdom of God does not advance with the sword, but through the church modeling after the self-sacrificial enemy-loving king. And it's so important because the world needs the kingdom. There's so much suffering. And when Jesus asks the kingdom to come, he's asking for the reality of God to break into this broken world around us. Arthur Paul Boer says this, I see now that this prayer is a cry of hope and yearning, a sigh of longing, even a despairing plea, all rooted in God's hope. It's a longing for things to be made right. Here's what's exciting. The king is on the move. Like in Narnia, you know, Aslan is on the move. The king is on the move and he's making things right all around. And you won't believe that if you're constantly tuned into the 24-hour news cycle, no matter what side you lean on, it's just doom, gloom, everything's terrible, we're all gonna die. Look around. King Jesus is doing great things. How many of you guys have been saved in the last uh, five years? Anyone here come to Christ in the last five years? Anyone here come to Christ in the last 10 years? So you see firsthand that the king is making changes. 
You've seen broken places in your life that the king has rebuilt and restored. You've seen horrible things in your life that the king has washed white with his blood and renewed you. You see this happening. It reminds me of the Lion King. Um, so in the Lion King, it was like, what's all with all the Disney analogies? I don't know. I'm a weird, I'm a high school pastor. Um, so in the Lion King, you've got Mufasa, who's obviously the God figure in the story. And then you've got Scar, who's basically Satan. And, um, you know, if you want to get a little more insight into the psychology of this, um, and if you want to like go online and like research Disney stuff like I do, cause I'm so weird, um, <laughs> you'll see that, um, Mufasa, when he was born, this is the backstory of the Lion King, the stuff you don't get watching the movie. When Mufasa and Scar were born, uh, Mufasa's name in African uh, basically means strong leader. So Mufasa comes out, his parents are like, he looks like a strong leader. Scar comes out. Scar's not his real name. His African name is Taka, which means trash. <laughs> So his parents are like, you're garbage. <laughs> so obviously he's got an inferiority complex and it just explains, so, like rewatch the movie and anyway. Um, <clears throat> so here's the thing. When Scar kills Mufasa and takes over, we see the land become desolate. We see it become just this barren wasteland where everything's dried up and there's no hope and there's no food and there's no rain. And, and, and I see in that a picture, uh, this picture, so many illustrations you get from Disney movies. I see this picture of when Satan had his minor victory in the garden and deceived Adam and Eve, the world becomes slave to the devil. And we see corruption and sin and just so much violence. We see the world just covered in desolation. Then what happens? The son of the king returns, Simba, and he defeats Scar. And then what's that scene where he walks up Pride Rock and he's taking his rightful place. He's ascending to the throne of king. And if you watch the movie, something really interesting happens. As he's walking up and, you know, his disciples to Moon and Pumbaa are like, whoa, they're watching. As he's walking up, the rain starts to fall. And as the rain falls, you see the earth begins to become green again. Things begin to grow again. You see the animals return and, and it's this restoration of things. And I look at that and it just, it's this beautiful picture because the morning Jesus the sun rose from the dead was the morning the sun rose on the kingdom of the coming Christ, the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The Bible says that if you are in Christ, you are now a new creation. That's not just talking about you're a better person now. It's talking about how the very identity of who you are has been made new. You are a part of this new creation that we'll fully see one day in the new heaven and the new earth. It starts now. Jesus is renewing you now and making you more like him. We're headed somewhere, new heaven and new earth. And on the way, God has begun to make all things new. Why do we live in the light of this kingdom? Why as Christians should we live into this light? Well, it's because God is showing the world through his church what heaven is like. Do you realize that? We're called to be a people where non-believers would look at us and because of the way we love, because of the way that we serve, because of the way we do not judge the sinner, but we pour out our hearts to reach them for the gospel. They look at us and they go, whoa, that looks amazing. That's probably what heaven's like. We show people what Jesus is like. Now, that's a tall order. You might be here and you're like, I actually fall on my face all the time and make mistakes. And when people look at me, I don't think they see Jesus. I think they see Satan. Like, <laughs> that's what it feels like at times. But listen, this is what we're called to. And so every time we fall, we get back up because King Jesus is saying, hey, this is what we live for. And you've fallen down, but rise back up because people are looking at you and they're watching you and they're, they want to see hope. Do they see hope in you? Heaven people begin to make things right. 
Scott McKnight says this, people who are living in view of heaven ought to be the most zealous about care for creation, love of others, peacemaking, and social justice. Heaven people, as I call them, have tasted the grandeur of heaven, and therefore, they long for it to begin now on earth. And these same people can be also those who long for the fullness of God's presence and the perfection of God's people in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, if you heard me say that, maybe your radar went up and you're like, did he just say social justice? I didn't know it was going to be that kind of message. Listen, listen. He's talking about a completely different kind of justice than any political agenda. He's talking about justice in the sense that to God, every single person is made in his his image and loved desperately. It's not this idea, it's not this political idea of robbing from the rich and taking uh, to give to the poor. In God's eye, justice is the rich, the poor, and anyone in the middle giving freely, not being taken from, but given freely out of the generosity of their own heart to love and serve people because in God's eyes, they are loved. And we're an expression of that. And we see this all over. Uh, Studies show that 60% of homeless shelters, uh, the beds are provided through faith-based organizations. We have a church where anyone who walks through our door will not just get, this happens every week, people who walk through our door, they don't just get food when they ask. They don't just get water. They get that. They also get the gospel. That's what we're called to be. This brings me to my next statement. The kingdom advances through missionaries, not through separating from sinners. Jesus advances his kingdom through brave missionaries, those who are willing to take the gospel to the whole world, but also to our own towns. And listen, everyone is called to be a missionary. You can't escape. You're called to it. Um, Not to lead a good life and hope that people notice, you know, like just go and be a good person. People are like, I bet they're a Christian. No, listen, Mormons live moral lives. Orthodox Jews live moral lives. Buddhists live moral lives. That doesn't save anyone. Moralism can't save you. Only Jesus Christ can. That's why we need to show people what Jesus is like through our actions and our words. Jesus' final words are go and make disciples. Why do we hide from sinners? And even that word sinner, we, we overuse it. It implies something. When we say, oh, those sinners, it implies they are bad and we are good. Can I remind you that lost people are loved people? And that there is nothing good about you and me besides Jesus Christ. Without him, we're just like anyone else. Those people who don't have him, they are sheep that desperately need a shepherd and the shepherd desperately wants to find them. We're not called to separation. Renew your mind. If we never touch non-believers with the love of Christ or if they only hear from us when we complain about sin, that's a problem. Wouldn't it be strange if doctors separated from patients? Jesus says, I'm the great physician, and it came for the sick. I remember this illustration um, of this pastor at a youth retreat, and he had a bowl of goldfish on the stage while he was preaching, and the goldfish are swimming around, and he's telling the kids, preach the gospel, go in your schools, and make Jesus' name great. And the kids are just like, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, okay. Like, they're, they're just listening. And then during the message, he scoops in, picks up the goldfish, and chucks them into the crowd. And the kids are like, what? Like they're freaking out. They're like, what's going on? And everyone's like, oh. And and the pastor goes, save the goldfish. You've got to save them. And all the kids start freaking out and they get up and and they're running around and one girl stepped on a goldfish and killed it. And just, it's, ah, everyone's freaking out. And and finally the kids get the other four goldfish and they come back in and they put it in the water. And as they put them in, everyone cheers. Everyone's freaking out and girls are crying and weeping. We saved the goldfish. It's just everyone's so happy and excited and clapping and cheering. And they sit down.
down and it gets quiet. And the pastor goes, that's all well and good. But when was the last time you cared as much for the people in your schools as you did for those goldfish? It just hit me. It was like twisting a knife. Because honestly, my default setting is selfishness. Default. Like I don't wake up and go, how can I serve people today? I wake up and I go, I'm hungry. <laughs> ah, me. Seriously. Like we all live in this show where it's, it's the me show and it, it, we, it's starring us and everyone else is a supporting character and those people on the street are just extras. Who cares about them, right? That's how we live. You're laughing because it's true. <laughs> um, so I went to go see Rogue One, amazing Star Wars movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's before episode four, uh, or yeah, before episode four, uh, a few months before, it's after the prequels, and don't think it's a sequel to The Force Awakens, because you'll be very confused. Um, if you understand what I'm talking about, congratulations, you're a nerd. Um, <laughs> like me. Anyway, I saw it with my friends, uh, my uncle, the junior high pastor Alex, Trevor Clark, my cousin Tony. We were all out watching this movie, and then afterwards, we're like, man, that was so great. Let's go to In-N-Out and just trip out on Star Wars and talk about all the deep, crazy conspiracy theories and, you know, um, how sassy Darth Vader was and just, you know, all that stuff. So, you know, we're, we're, we're going to do that. But then I realized I was out of gas. And so I'm like, guys, I've got to go to the gas station. So I show up at the gas station and um, it's pouring. It is raining so hard. Remember, we went through that rain recently. It was that night where it was literally coming down so hard before the hail. Um, but yeah, it was just really, really hard rain. And so I'm driving and I pull up to the gas station and as I'm walking through, I lock eyes with this man. He's an older guy, probably in his 40s, gray hair, kind of like uh, stubble and these piercing blue eyes and he locks eyes with me. It's this homeless guy sitting out in the rain and my first thought is, nope. (laughs) I just walked right past him. I was like, I don't want anything to do with that on a rainy, dark night. No. So I go in, I get my gas, I come out, he grabs me and I'm like, oh no, here it comes. I'm coming for the kingdom. Uh, (laughs) He's taking me out. But he's like, hey, sir, can you give me a ride? I'm like, where do you need to go? He's like, just, I need a ride about an hour away to this casino. And I'm like, hour away. It's like midnight. It's rain. Like, no. So I I just, I told him, I was like, sorry, man, I can't do that. And he's like, oh, okay. You know, it's just, I need help because, um, you know, I, I live by the casino. Me and my girlfriend, we live in our cars and we drove down in her car, but she's an illegal alien. So we got stopped by the cops and now she's in jail and I'm out on the streets and I, I just, I need help, man. I'm stranded and I'm going to have to sleep out here in the rain. And I just was like, I don't know what to tell you, man. I'm sorry. And I get in my car and I start driving away and the Lord spoke to me and he's like, son, this is what I've called you to. Like, this is why you're here on the earth. It's moments like this. How can you let this pass? How can you be so selfish? And I just was so convicted. I was like, Lord, I don't want to help him. I don't want to drive an hour. And the Lord was like, pull over. So I pull over and he's like, just pray. So I'm praying and I'm like, all right, God, what do you want me to do? And one word came to my mind. It was Uber, just Uber, voice of the Lord. And I was like, that's weird. I didn't know you spoke German. (laughs) I don't know. But he says it. And I'm like, oh, I'll call an Uber. So I call up an Uber and I'm like, hey, can you get here? You know, how much is it going to cost? I'm thinking it's going to be really expensive. It was like 15 bucks to drive him an hour away in the pouring rain at midnight. Somehow it was cheap. And I was like, whoa, bonus. Like, thanks, Lord. So um, I go to the guy and I'm like, hey, listen, man, I actually, I I can help you. I, I called an Uber. And he's like, 
thank you so much. God, just, he was so thankful. And he gets up and he gives me this hug. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome, man. And I'm like, the Lord puts it on my heart. Uh, buy him some food. So I'm like, all right. So I take him to the gas station. I'm buying him food. I'm like, get whatever you want. He's just grabbing a bunch of stuff. And I'm like, awesome. This is great. I feel good. Well, then I get out and the Uber showed up really quick. And I was like, oh no, I wanted to tell him about Jesus, but the Uber's here. Like, what do I do? And the Lord was like, just get in there. Just make it quick. So I'm like, hey man, he's like getting in the car. And I'm like, hey man, check this out. Um, you know, I wanted more time to tell you this, but Jesus loves you so much. And it wasn't a coincidence that we were both here tonight. You know, God planned this and he's got a plan for you, man. He's chasing after you because he loves you so much. You need to know that. And he puts his hand on my shoulder and he's like, son, you have no idea. I was a pastor for 20 years. I was just like, oh my gosh. And he's like, I went through this divorce. I got kicked out of my church. Everyone who was my friend deserted me. And he's like, you know, I've been Jonah. I've been running from the Lord. I've been rejecting him. But, and I've been asking him, where are you? And, and you know what? Tonight, he, he showed me where he is. He showed me. He goes, thank you so much, son. I, I'll never forget this. And he got in his car and drove off. And I was just like, man, thank you so much, Lord. Thank you so much that you work through our weaknesses. And when we submit, God does amazing things. You see, the kingdom advances through simple obedience, not through escapism, not through this idea of the world is going to hell in a handbasket and I just need to hunker down and wait for Jesus to come back and live for myself and make sure that I'm comfortable. That is not the gospel. We are called to get out and to reach people, and to struggle through that default setting every day of selfishness, to say, Jesus, today, your kingdom come, your will be done, here, now, through my life. I'm a vessel, work through me, I'm nothing, but if I submit myself to you, you can do great things. The Bible says that he has gone before us and prepared great works in advance for us, that we can step into them. You need to know this. Write this down if you have a pen. I want you to chew on this this week. Simple acts of obedience are the building bricks of the kingdom of God. Simple acts of obedience. My final point, that was a quick one. My final point is this. The kingdom advances through love, not fear. You know, we live in a culture that's really defined by fear a lot of times about this idea of honestly worshiping the twin idols of safety and security, of just, I don't want to do anything that makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to do anything that puts me at risk. I just want to go to church and have God bless me. And then I leave church and I just want God to bless me and my life and my marriage and my work and everything just needs to be good. And I'll give God my time and then he'll bless me. That's how it works. That's what we think. And you know, I was, I was thinking uh, this week about just uh, something that's going on in our culture, um, which is all the, this debate that's going on about the refugee crisis. You know, and there's people in other countries and ISIS is attacking them. And, and it's like, what do we do about it? You know, do we let them in? Do we keep them out? You know, the government's saying one thing. And, and there's a lot of debates going on. And, and I've, I've been reading about it. I've been reading debates and reading opinions. And honestly, um, a lot of my own thoughts have gone towards Safety and security. Like, okay, there's some crazy thing happened to people in that other country. I don't even know what country it is, but, you know, I know it's scary and I really, like, want to be safe, you know? And that's, what I'm, that's where my mind goes. It's just like, man, I just, I just, you know, whatever's going on then, like, God bless them, but like, I just want to be safe. And the Lord humbled me just so deeply because I was reading in this Christian magazine, very mission-minded Christian magazine, and I was just kind of thinking through these issues. And 
you know, this guy, this pastor in a country that's being overrun by ISIS right now, he was writing in this article to just the church at large, and he was saying this. He's like, you know what? There's a lot of us in these countries, pastors of Christian churches, where we are actually encouraging our congregation members not to run, not to go to America, not to go to England, not to go to Australia. We're encouraging the people in our church to stay right in their neighborhoods because no matter what the enemy does, we serve the king and we're called to be a light to our community. God has put us here for a reason and he went on to say that even though there's some fear and some people have left, for the people who've stayed behind, the church is growing and people are flocking to the church because of the hopelessness around them. They're longing to be a part of a community that looks like Christ. And I was just so humbled. I read that and I was like, oh my goodness. Like, who am I to look at this situation and just think of myself, to not even care? And I, I, the Lord spoke to me and I was like, you know, whatever the government does, you know, whatever they want to do, for me, I need to pray. I need to pray for these people. I need to fall on my knees and stop thinking so much of myself and just pray, Lord, protect them, help them, grow the church, do miraculous things. I need to be praying about, is the Lord gonna send missionaries over there? Or is the Lord gonna send people to help? That's where my heart needs to be because that is focusing on God's kingdom and not my kingdom. So I was very humbled thinking through that. I wanna invite the band to come back up and we're, we're just gonna close. And, you know, I think God has probably said a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I think today we just need to chew on this idea of the kingdom. I'll close with this quote from Glenn H. Stassen. He says this, When you pray that the will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven, envision conflict being resolved, marriages and families healed, truth told and people faithful to one another, initiatives that break through the vicious cycle of retaliation and love that creates new community among people through forgiveness, reconciliation, and peacemaking. Isn't that beautiful? So good. We are called to be this community of the kingdom. And as we close with a song, what we're going to do is we're going to enter into a time of communion. The ushers are going to come up and they're going to pass out the bread and the cup. And I want you to do something. As you look at that bread and that cup, the bread represents the body of Jesus that was broken for us. The blood represents his sin. Or his, not his sin. He had no sin. <laughs> Don't quote me on that. The blood represents, or the wine, the cup, the juice. <laughs> the grape juice. It represents his blood that was poured over us to wash our sins. Remember today that you're a new creation. As you take that, remember the blood that covered your sins and made you a kingdom person. Remember that God has called you to something greater and something higher than just living for yourself. We're called to live for him. That means living without fear, but living with love. Let's pray. Lord, we want to offer you this time. We want to ask, God, that you pour out your spirit on us. We need you, God. We need you because we're so self-centered. God, help us to look at every situation through the lens of the gospel. Help us to remember, God, that your kingdom is breaking through. And we are called not to build our own little kingdoms here that crumble. We're called to advance your kingdom. And the only way we can do that is by taking ourself off the throne 
dying to self and letting you be the king of our heart. Jesus, be that king today. Help us to love radically. Help us to live in holiness. Help us to submit to your will. Help us to wake up and say, Jesus, what do you want with me today? I'll do it. I'll do it. Help us to remember that those simple acts of obedience are the building bricks in the kingdom of God. Jesus, to you be all the glory and the honor and the power forever and ever. We ask today that you build your kingdom here in us and that as we move forward to that final day where you restore all things, where you reunite heaven and earth, help us to move forward with that cry of Maranatha, come Lord quickly, not a cry of escapism, but a cry of expectation. We love you, Jesus, and we ask this in your name, amen.